I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan coming to you on a smoggy day during the winter inversion in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is YouTuber Logan Reese, better known by his online handle Runesmith. Logan gives viewers his comedic take on writing and Dungeons & Dragons on his Runesmith YouTube channel, and has a live play series called Tall Tales. He also writes and produces supplemental modules for Dungeons & Dragons, including the wildly successful kickstarted Stibble's Code of Companions and The Seeker's Guide to Twisted Taverns. Logan and I chat about his YouTube channel, creative collaboration, writing for tabletop gaming, the burnout so common amongst weekly creators, and how algorithms and fan demand inevitably steer our professional lives. Enjoy my conversation with Logan Reese. So when did you kind of realize that you had a really good voice for doing kind of performative stuff? That's interesting because I think like after I kind of, you know, started to mature and we were doing like church videos back when I uh, worked with the church and I did like a really deep bellowing voice because I was supposed to be God and some silly skit. And they were like, wait, that was actually you? I was like, yeah. From there, I just kind of went on and started to kind of develop it. It's an interesting little gift. So is it not is it not your real voice? I mean, real is subjective, but yeah, this is my authentic voice. I just did like a, a deeper kind of booming bassy character for that. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Because I know that some people kind of like they kind of do affectations or kind of switch things up a little bit or, or have different voices they'll use for different situations. Um, but, you know, that's actually a very good voice to just be born with. Yeah, right. You know, I do want to get into voice acting, but the courage comes first. I got to get got to get that. <laughs> I mean, I feel like uh, courage shouldn't take too much with, you know, what are you at? Like 350,000 YouTube followers? Yeah. So you'd think it comes really easily, but no, there's a whole kind of the imposter syndrome that sets in and then just the general like day to day identity. They they are definitely struggles when a lot of what I've done is built off of the help of other people. Mm. It's hard to kind of, you know, say that I can claim it. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually really interesting because I, I had been kind of, uh, kind of um you know sifting through some of your projects and things and i i honestly it was it's a little bit difficult to tell what is a hundred percent you and what is uh collaborative works uh what are kind of bigger companies that you've just kind of been working with um you seem to have like a lot of other YouTubers and uh, creators that you like to work with on a regular basis? Yeah, um, definitely with my sideshow, Tall Tales, I try to work with a lot of people kind of in my field and just help share the spotlight with them because a lot of them are really talented and they definitely a decent number of them don't kind of have the viewings that I get. So I want to be able to share that spotlight with them. Uh, For the main channel, a lot of it has been myself. And then um, just for this, only this past year, I was working with an editor 
So one year, just me. And then one year with the editor, man. So have you really only been going for a couple of years now? Uh, I'm at three, I believe three. Yeah. And then a little bit before that, working with Jacob on his channel, XP to level three. That is very cool. That's uh, that's that's quite a leap forward, but I can kind of see why, you know, like it's I kind of love you. Know, I've talked to a few YouTubers for this podcast and I know a few people mm -hmm. and a lot of them do uh, much longer form videos. Um, and I really like kind of the short, punchy uh, comedy kind of oriented educational stuff that you do. Um, my wife and I kind of just like crashed in my office last night and spent a couple hours just watching uh, like your basic, basically funny. Uh, series. Um, very, very fun. Uh, and I, I, I was kind of curious what, uh, what kind of work goes into something that's a little shorter, but also seems to be much more intensive on editing. And um, maybe I, I, I don't know how long it takes to write something like that. That's an interesting question. I've answered it a couple different ways before, but it, it is a very segmented style of work where I go from, you know, doing all the research that I can and, you know, with, with a tighter schedule for the videos, it's kind of hard to do full in-depth research that people like Mr. Rex do. Um, so I'll take a lot of the, the key main points and then I'll kind of think about, uh, whatever the topic that I'm going into, I try to come up with a few jokes and then I build on those key points, make sure that they come across as clear and hopefully as concise as possible. And then, um, the editing is just a second layer. It, it's very arduous, very tedious when you get into the editing, they just kind of, they're supposed to just help add and accentuate to the punchlines that maybe don't come across in the audio very well. And then I like to do a second run through and do as many sound effects as I can, but. That's one of the more the things that seems really minor. But when you actually watch it back with and without sound effects, it's a pretty major thing. When I had the editor, I, that was a major thing that like reviewing a video I was like, we need sound effects here, here, here and here. Yeah, yeah, very much like I, I uh, it's interesting because they the, it feels like you kind of have to aim for the correct amount of busyness in videos like these. Yeah, because if you don't have enough, then it's then it's a little bare, you know, a little barren mm -hmm. um, and not as entertaining. But if you have too much, it, it maybe kind of overwhelms the watcher. Yeah, it feels chaotic. Yeah, um, I actually have stumbled into both territories in previous videos. So I think a lot of that probably just kind of subconsciously comes from experience. Do you feel like you have a, a, a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of D&D &D and kind of fantasy tropes? Or do you feel like you just are constantly building on it with more and more research? I, I feel like I kind of try to be a jack of all trades. I don't try to specialize into one field of knowledge and then forget everything else. So I, I know a lot about a lot of different things with D&D, especially now that I'm writing supplements. I need to know how stat blocks work. I need to know all these tiny, tiny little things like how you capitalize different sizes depending on the context that you're using it. There's so much nuance that comes into the actual writing. And then on top of that, there's all the lore. And then there's just the functionality of the game. So there's all these different layers that I really like to just kind of dip my fingers into everything. But I, d I would never call myself a master of any of the topics. <laughs> so do you even kind of uh, do your own like copy editing and things like that for writing the gaming supplements? I think I know what you mean. Do you like, do I make templates based on stuff? Yeah, I mean, the templates yeah. and kind of the uh, doing the editing, making sure, like you were saying, everything's capitalized right. And, you know, just yeah. knowing what is uh, the formatting for this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I have definitely become an editor of my own writing and the writers that I work with and the books, the people that we help to do kind of the smaller things to meet the timeline. 
I always go back, make sure, you know, they know what they're talking about. A lot of the problem is uh, speaking to the reader, the writer and the players as you or like the GM as you, which you just don't do unless it's a read aloud. So a lot of minor things there. But um, going back to your original question, I went on a bit of a tangent there. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just I find that kind of interesting with the because uh, like as somebody who who writes for a living, like I, I look at kind of what you do. Uh, and I, I'm kind of amazed at the sheer number of different things you have to do. Um, and I've, I've talked to this with other YouTubers of this I, idea of, you know, with the, the editing, the performing, the writing, there is so much going on. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm kind of amazed by that. Cause I can get away with, you know, I can get away with writing. You know, I write epic fantasy novels. I, yeah, sometimes I self-publish and in that case, I'll do a little bit more editing and I'll do a little more write, uh, art directing. But most of the time, I have other people to kind of take care of that for me. Mm -hmm. But with a lot of YouTubers, it seems like oftentimes they are kind of like one man shows almost. And that's amazing. Yeah. When you're creating content, it's like you are planting a seed that you have to nurture and watch grow. And when it starts to branch out, it's still your thing. So you want to tend to all these branches. You want to make sure you're pruning the right things, growing the right things. And it becomes really overwhelming and really stressful for a lot of creators. A lot of us are kind of falling into burnout because we aren't built up in a team environment. Mm -hmm. We start independent. And then when we get the opportunity to have a team, it's very difficult to make that adjustment. Yeah. And when you say difficult to make that adjustment, is it is it oftentimes just allowing someone else to have their fingers in the creative control that you struggle with? I have heard that from just about every other person who's made that adjustment. And I like to see other people shine more than I do, yeah. which kind of falls in line with the identity thing. But um, I, that's not really the struggle. It's just getting the time and having the energy to go through everything and to make sure that every part, every facet of a project that I'm working on is getting enough of my attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I guess almost, I mean, even when you're working with a team, like, do you, do you often kind of take over as the, um, uh, do you often just contribute one thing when you're working with a team or do you, or are you kind of at the center where you're almost the director or the creative director? Yeah, I am classified as the creative director for the books that I do. And then for the videos that I do, I'm pretty much the, the sole content creator there. So I very much am kind of an independent beacon of the projects that I do, I, I try to make sure that everything fits kind of the general vision that I have, because if it feels like it's steering off into if I notice a bias that I don't have, then I try to make sure that that's not you know represented or that it's adjusted and that I talk to the team member and be like, hey, you know, why is this like this? And then can we change it? And then can we both understand why the change needed to be made? So there's definitely a huge amount of balance across all these different fields. And, you know, there are people higher than me. There are people that I work over. It's it's a weird balance, but I, I do try to make sure that everything has a little part of me in it. Yeah. What kind of a background do you have in like so like, uh, for instance, like kind of your main channel is there's a lot of kind of our own cultural history mix, mixed with mm -hmm. uh, fantasy history um, and comedy. Like what kind of background do you have in those things? Oh, nothing. Um <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it is just personal, personal, passionate um, interest. Yeah, I try to do as much research as I can in everything, but I don't have any, um, you know, authoritative proof like other people can't say, oh, yeah, he did that. I don't have certificates for this. The one thing I went to college for, I, I got a certificate in graphic design mm -hmm. um, that was like a two year quote unquote degree. 
But um, outside of that, no, I've had a, a bunch of just entry level, I think 20 something different jobs um, across the span of three or four years. And then I jumped into this. So I'm used to being spread thin over a bunch of different things. So I think that's kind of where my comfort level comes from. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of cool. I'm, I, I'm interested in this because in, in the writing field, in kind of in the novel field, you get kind of that spread of different people uh, that come into writing novels. And a lot of times you'll have, you know, people that have been prof- you know, business professionals for 20, 30 years and then wrote their big novel. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it blows up and they kind of transition careers and things. Yeah. And, and I've, uh, you know, I kind of had the same situation with you uh, where I just, I got out of college. I had an English degree, you know, how useful is that? Mm. And it uh, is now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and then a few years, you know, I, I worked crap jobs and, and then became a novelist from there. That's really cool. And, uh, and, and so it's kind of fun when, when I kind of, uh, meet other people that have ended up in similar situations where they didn't necessarily kind of come from anything no they kind of came from their own interest life is always extremely chaotic and you can never plan out how it's going to go um that's just a really interesting part of kind of the way that life happens to you is you have to you know um make leaps of faith where you can when you see something that is sparking interest in kind of what you want to do where you want to go you might get lucky you might not like uh when i jumped into doing youtube after leaving jacob's channel i quit uh working for my dad I had been working there for like a year at a hydraulic shop. Mm -hmm. So I only had like maybe $2,000 in my bank account. And I was like, I'm going to start a channel now. Going to go gung-ho. And either I fail, I move back in with my dad and I start the same job again. Or something else happens. And I just got lucky because I tried. And I'm sure it's you're in a similar situation. Uh, Oh, oh, very much so. I honestly, I I talk about kind of people will ask me like at at writing conventions and stuff. They'll say, oh, what what kind of gets you to write? And, you know, and it's always I always feel bad because most writers have like a really good artistic answer. And mine is I don't want to work as a fry cook again. It's a fair one. Yeah, (laughs) I have I have no other discernible skills other than making crap up. Hmm. Well, that is a, a valuable skill, and there's definitely um, a lot of passion that you just have to have as a person in order to get that kind of skill. Yeah, so that's always valuable. What, was your dad uh, supportive of kind of you jumping into this YouTube thing? I that's a, that's an interesting question. And <laughs> if, I, if it's a bad question, you do not have to answer it. No, not really. I mean, he definitely is now. I think a huge part of it is just he is a very much a working man who, you know, raised three kids, wanted to put them all through college, get him a good life and then go his own way. But um, I was definitely a wild card. So there was a lot of what I was trying to do that he didn't understand. And I'm sure it was just like, I'm going to let him do his thing. And when he's done, he's going to come and, you know, live a normal American life. And I just didn't do that. Yeah. So now that he's seen, you know, it's it's doing good for me. I think that's all he cares about. Right. It is a little bit weird when you kind of jump into creative profession, especially when you jump in kind of both feet in. Yeah. And and, you know, family members often don't really kind of know how to react to that. No, I think I'd been a professional author full time for three or four years when I got a, a phone call from one of my brothers. And one of the first thing he says uh, is, uh, oh, hey, uh, how's the writing thing going? Uh, when are you going to get a real job? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and and he didn't mean it maliciously. Oh, yeah. But I told him what I had made that year and he didn't ask again. That's a respectable response. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, sometimes there's you... no such thing as a real job. Right. Exactly. I, uh, I, I've talked to um, Brandon Sanderson, a big epic fantasy author, about kind of that whole thing. Uh, where he talks about uh, 
a lot of the friends he had in college that kind of looked at him wanting to be an epic fantasy author and said, well, that's a, that's not a secure field. Um, he's like, yeah, I'm the only one of my old friends that has had the same job for the last X number of years. Hmm. You know, everybody else, they jump careers, they switch things up all the time. And And so, you know, it's, not everything's that reliable. No. And it's funny now these unreliable jobs of, you know, very hit or miss the way that the work environment for them is, is very safe during these rough times. So it's, it's a weird kind of pit to fall into. Well, and that's another thing is, uh, from what I understand, COVID just made a ton of online content and, and gaming content just exploded in popularity what did mm-hmm. what did uh wizards of the coast uh report something like a 300 percent increase in 2021 for their sales or something like that huh. just that makes sense yeah I, I don't look into statistics that just makes me sad yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's probably a little more you know me- good for your mental health yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's crazy how that kind of has changed do you feel like your your own channel kind of has do you feel like you've seen patterns or kind of gotten bigger responses over the last, I mean, obviously you haven't even gone that much longer than the pandemic has been going, but, but the, during the pandemic, did you feel like you saw a big surge? No, I think uh, that's definitely a personal story on my end. I just kind of um, started making shifts in content. I started wanting to try new things, get more comfortable because COVID hitting is a very stressful thing for everyone across the world and trying to, um, getting stuck in a creative rut is also very stressful. So I tried to move away from it and that YouTube naturally just kind of tanks some videos. So I have kind of been on a bit of a, uh, uh, roller coaster when it comes to audience retention for the past mm. year or so. And, um, I, I'd like to kind of take a break and step away from, uh, a little bit of what I'm doing and just work on my mentality and come back at it with a, a, a healthier approach. Well, and that, that seems to be a pretty common refrain from YouTubers is that the, the requirement to put out so much content yeah. to really retain your audience, it sounds like it's just rife with burnout and, yeah. um, and it's really hard to sustain with just trying to have any kind of life work balance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an echo of uh, people who make TV shows that are really successful. Um, the, you know, the studio or like YouTube studio, they, they come to people and they say, Hey, like lost. Uh, I think they wanted to run for three or six seasons and they said, no, you're running for 12 and you can't rewrite a story if that's the end of the story. So it becomes bad. It becomes like, kind of like beating a dead horse and YouTube, if it sees anything that you do that's slightly successful, that is your identity until you leave YouTube. So the basically series is fun. You know, I've definitely uh, lost some interest in it from time to time and it comes back every once in a while. Like, um, I saw a few new topics that I'd like to approach, but when I'm not interested in it and when I want to explore these new ideas, I am not financially allowed to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a financial risk for you yeah. to try anything else. Um, and obviously writing books has been uh, somewhat lucrative, definitely compared to just basic like um, YouTube and sponsorships. So I would like to explore different things and I'd like to take a break and step away for a little while and not suffer as much as I normally would. Um, doing that just as a as a creator so it's it's kind of an echo of that whole don't put all your eggs in one basket but when you're starting a channel when you're starting your presence online it just happens you kind of have to yeah yeah and that that kind of um that identity thing uh and kind of your your creator brand 
I mean, it's not just algorithms. It's also fan bases. And I, I think yeah. this kind of goes across for, it probably goes across kind of the spectrum of creators. You know, it certainly does for, for epic fantasy authors. You, if you get popular for one thing, mm -hmm. uh, people expect you to do pretty much that thing for the rest of your yeah. career. You know, I, I, I finished out uh, six Powder Mage novels and then started getting emails immediately of, uh, okay, what do you, uh, when's your next Powder Mage novel? I was oh. like, man, I, I already signed a contract. I've got a whole new series coming out. I understand you want more Powder Mage, but I've got to switch it up for my own health. You have to start again. Yeah. It's, it's all cyclical. It's, if you're one thing for too long, it's like an animal that's being alive for too long. It's going to just collapse and fall exhausted. So you have to keep doing like recycling, creating new things, putting old things away. And I kind of got lucky with the pattern of the first three books that we're doing. The first one was Stibbles. It was a bestiary. The second one was a collection of locations and short stories. And this next one is a full overarching adventure. So from there, it's kind of like no one really knows what to expect. It could be any of that repeating or it could be something new. And that's I, I feel like I'm hoping it's a healthy place to be in if this next one does well. Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. Are you more comfortable with the um, kind of because we talked about uh, lots of different aspects of what you do? Uh, are you more comfortable on the writing side than you are on maybe the performing side? I, I definitely think so. Uh, like I said, Jacob is very much a performer personality. He actually has experience at like doing uh, stage plays and stuff. And his YouTube activity is a lot older than mine. So picking back that. I was much more of kind of a writer. I, I wanted to help kind of design the content and make sure that the stage and the setting and the people acting like it, it was more authentic and more fun to experience. Um, but he is just naturally authentic. So that's kind of where the clash comes in. Because So I, I moved over to making my own content. And the first thing I tried was similar to his. And now I've moved much more behind the screen because I'm not very comfortable doing the full personal performance, putting myself out there as opposed to my ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's kind of an interesting take on it. I, uh, myself, I, I kind of have always been much more comfortable with the writing because yeah, you know, me too. when you're talking, like even, even when you're doing scripted stuff, when you're working on your own scripts and stuff like that, it's almost like, like talking feels so much more permanent to me with writing. I can edit it as on the fly. I can mm -hmm. be working on it. I can be creating, I can shift it around really easily. You know, words on a page are just, that's a, that's my play thing now. You know, I've yeah, had a long career for it. You like very much. We, we kind of share the sentiment. It's a parallel of why call when you can text, right? Oh, I hate yeah. talking on the phone so much. Exactly. So doing voice recordings, um, I'm, you know, comfortable with my voice, which is a blessing that I have. It's probably the only reason that my channel took off. 
from the start. And now, you know, it's because of personality presence and I think genuine, or what's, what's the adjective for genuine? Is it just genuine? Yeah. Genuine being genuine. Okay. Being genuine, <laughs> genuinity. <laughs> uh, but, um, I'm happy to kind of find myself in that place, but yeah, I'm much more comfortable with just sitting down and writing an idea that isn't yeah. me. Yeah. I was, uh, I was looking through some of kind of like the books that you've done, like the, the Kickstarters and things like that. And the sheer amount of content in those, it's just mind boggling to me. I, I dabbled a little bit in RPG writing for a powder mage RPG. We did hmm. gosh, a few years back. And and I found that, you know, I don't, when I'm writing prose, uh, I can write 200,000 words in you know, seven months or so. It's really not that hard oh, for me. Yeah. But when, when I tried writing in an RPG world, it just froze my brain. I, yeah. I could not do that, like, different type of writing. It mm -hmm. took me, like, six months to write 25,000, 30,000 words. Yeah. Uh, well, we got in a really a pressurized time crunch for this last one. I think we had two or three months, and we ended up at 202,000. And that was with three writers. We initially had four, including myself, so I was doing directing through the whole book. Um, uh, so that's uh, in addition to kind of editing their work, editing my own work and creating the content. Um, we had four and then one of them dropped for personal reasons. And then we had another one come in really late because it was hard to like, you know, look for writers and say, Hey, can you work now? Which is not fair to them, but that's just the situation that we fell into. And I was glad that someone responded, but yeah, it's a very kind of pressure cooker environment. It, it, it can be, but when it comes to RPG writing, like you were saying, it's a whole different field because you're not writing a story. You're writing a bunch of introductions to different stories mm -hmm. and you have this overarching plot because you, you can't determine what the players are going to do because they're not characters that you've created. So they're, they're like full paragraphs and stuff of just if the party, if the party, if the party, <laughs> it has to be that way sometimes. Right. That's that's interesting. It's almost like, I don't know, like did when you were like when you were a kid, did you ever run across like the choose your own adventure books? Oh, I love them. There was one Goosebumps one that I still remember. Yeah, it, it feels <laughs> like like D&D &D these days has almost become the modern equivalent of choose your own adventure books because there's so much content available for D&D &D yeah. and and role playing games in general. Uh, but it does feel a little like that. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, Skyrim was one of the big starting points for D&D &D because it was a video game that was open ended. Like you could kind of do anything and be anyone. And when people sunk their teeth into that, they loved it so much that Bethesda made it 17 more times. So when there's <laughs> another environment where you can be slightly more free than that, of course, people are going to fall in love with it. But like I did, you did. It, it's very natural. People want to tell their own stories, make their own characters and just feel free of consequence in the storytelling. Yeah, oh, for sure. I, I It's funny because, you know, from a writer's uh, novelist perspective, yeah. you get a lot of people who kind of go into writing classes and things like that. And there is the assumption that everybody wants to make a living uh, from writing. And I think that a lot of people just want to develop the skills to be able to play in their own sandboxes. Yeah. It, they don't, they're not necessarily looking for a career. No. Um, they're looking, or even to get published at all. I mean, the, is anyone really looking for a career? I, I definitely was. It's a fear response though, because you want to be able to afford food and a house. Like everyone's looking for that. And then they're looking for a way to express themselves. Okay, that's fair. And writing, yeah, writing's a very happy and comfortable place to do that. So you want to be able to be free of that fear and then you want to just write, you want to create. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I kind of, it's, it's a, a thing that kind of in kind of the creative writing field, you don't see a lot of acknowledgement towards. Yeah. I find it an interesting kind of aspect of, you know, what we do for a living is that a lot of people, they just want to learn to be able to, how to, uh, to be able to express themselves. And, yes. uh, and, and I don't know if we teach that very well in public school. No, no, not at all. You get punished for doing it. Yeah, I did. A lot of people, especially nowadays, because communication is a lot less personal, they're struggling more and more with finding ways to properly express themselves in ways that people receive comfortably. And it's it's just going to be an uphill battle for a while. COVID hit and that was even worse. So we've got three layers that we need to dig ourselves out of. Yeah. And it can be it can be rough because I think that, you know, I've always kind of been told, even from when I was young, that that so few people even know how to write an introductory letter for themselves for a job yeah. that it's uh, that kind of commute, the ability to communicate, the ability to, to write something down and have someone else understand what you meant mm-hmm. um, is, is honestly, it's, it's a skill that you have to, to kind of nurture. And I think that, Oh yeah, it's a rare skill too. Yeah. And, and I think that really applies to gaming a lot because when I, I talk to a lot of friends who, you know, like, when you're going into like a gaming setting, especially playing something like D and D around a table um, or online or whatever, everybody kind of comes to it with their own expectations and what they want to put into it. And some people are really good at playing a character, and some people are really good at organizing a campaign. Uh, but a lot of people aren't. They want to be, but they're not. Yeah. So they bring their comfort zone into the game, and then it becomes this boiling pot that you know, either makes or breaks friendships. That's kind of what D&D is, because there are people like, you know, I have some friends who uh, come from a background of like League of Legends, mm-hmm. where you min-max everything that you do. It's all numbers, 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 and knee-jerk reactions. So falling into D&D, you want to make someone cool. You want to make a cool scene happen, like the way you envisioned it in your head, but you can't communicate that because you're just thinking in numbers. Yeah. So it's it's a great learning platform, I think. And, and learning interpersonal relationships, honestly. You know, I think a lot of people that... Yeah. That's what I mean. Get into these games. They, um, you know, maybe they're not socially the best. I know that I've never been socially the best, you know, kind of person to just be a good friend and talk oh, to people yeah. and stuff like that. Especially in character. It helps teach you. I get really antagonistic with other characters. <laughs> I notice these flaws and I'm like, hey, that's just a boiling point. Right. But continue. No, it's 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 kind of fun though. It's it's interesting to look at things like gaming uh tabletop gaming as not just a bit of fun for the weekend but as something that actually teaches you skills yeah. that are kind of applicable to the real world oh absolutely it's it's a consequence free environment with a bunch of friends where every action that you take is explorative. It's not your own. No one's going to blame you for it, or no one should, rather, um, unless you're just being, you know, an arbiter. You're just being there to mess with people, and that's no fun. But uh, for a lot of people, it is kind of a confidence booster to be able to sit down and be whatever you want to be without anyone calling you out for it. Yeah, and and oftentimes, if you're not comfortable in your own skin, mm. you may be able to learn to be comfortable inhabiting a character. Yeah, and that's why uh, people who play D&D, they find they kind of change their beliefs. They change their identities a lot. That's really the environment it's accidentally built, but it's because it's such this this beautiful kind of uh, AI testing ground where you, you find out who you really want to be, who you're comfortable with being, as opposed to who, you's, who you've always been. Yeah. Now I was, I, I, I had wanted to talk to you about a little bit more about the books because, you know, mm-hmm. you touched upon kind of these, the, the books that you've done, the supplementals. 
Uh, I'm really curious about a little bit of the, kind of the nitty gritty on that. Um, mm-hmm. One of those was one of my my questions was, do you have to do any kind of I don't know if the right word is legal juggling to kind of not have Wizards of the Coast send a lawyer after you? Yeah. Um, so for a lot of people who start doing um, like, what is it, GM's Guild and start making their own supplements, you know, some of the first steps are realizing you can't use Dungeon Master, you use Game Master. So it's GM all the way through. Yeah. And then uh, there's a piece of uh, writing that they published to the public that is called the SRD or the Source Resource Document or something. But um, it is an open game license. Mm-hmm. So everything that they have there, we can use. And then from that, we have to build anything else that's in the book that you can't use. So I, de- I definitely do, like when I'm building monster stat blocks that are casters i have to like shift f and then check for what spells they can cast see if they're allowed to and then if i can't i can either make another spell or i compromise so there there's definitely some juggling yeah oh that that's fascinating because it's it's almost like doing intellectual property work which is very common in the novel world um but you still own it because you're just working with what the company lets you use for free yeah so it's like putting dracula and um like uh, i guess winnie the pooh now in my story i can use them but i can't like i it would kind of be irresponsible to reference actual events that happened while they were you know not public domain or well well like being very direct you have to yeah. be not so much derivative but inspired by i think is a good way to put it that's interesting now do you find do you find you like kind of playing in this kind of open source world or or do you find that you um you really like to dig into things that are more of your own um you know i it's hard to run around in an open field it's a lot more fun to go to like a jungle gym things that have already been established and set up for you to play on and play with and use to your own devices so D&D and um, I've said it a million times before, but City of Mist are both very different properties and they're both super fun to create stories in, but they mm-hmm. are naturally restrictive. Um, I feel like if I were to try and make my own or go off of like off my own to make some other story, it would be very difficult. I would have to pull inspiration from these um, existing ideas. Yeah. Well, and also there's kind of the I don't know, the 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 business benefit of of using something that's a juggernaut like yeah. D&D. Then, and because, I mean, it is big business doing supplements for specifically for D&D. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's actually the most restrictive part of it is the fact that if I wanted to use others, I couldn't. If I want to pay, you know, mortgage and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so th- that is probably the major thing that it comes down to. But for what D&D 5e is, like if I were doing 3.5, I would be very unhappy because mm-hmm. it's a lot more restrictive. It's a lot more mechanical. So I'm happy with what we have. It could be better. It could be a lot worse. Yeah. It's um do you uh do you think that do you think that you uh do you ever consider the idea of having um kind of like a a point at which your fan base is so large that you would feel comfortable kind of doing your own thing or do you feel fairly beholden to working within kind of these systems that already exist the the question posed there is is not so much the issue it's more if i had a larger audience 
I would feel more pressured because like all these people are here from my own perspective. They're here for 5e content. Mm. They're here for the things that they request and that they're currently interested in. And that is true, especially on YouTube. But, you know, there's a proportional fan base. And um, I think it, it, it takes a lot more kind of comfort and confidence in my own abilities as a creator and as a person before I can trust that my fan base will be there for me in any situation. Well, and, and that's something that writers think about all the time. Oh, um, yeah. You know, we, we talk about uh, for, for novelists, we talk about, okay, when you're starting a new universe, how, what percentage of your old fans are going to follow you there because they like you, the author versus they'll say, well, screw that. They're not doing the universe I like. I am cheating my way out of that. Oh, yeah? I have, yeah, a sort of a meta overarching story that is, it has ties to the physical real world and to me as a writer and as a creator of the stories. So each book, whether or not they're set in a different universe or a different chapter, is kind of irrelevant. They're all a part of the same universe and they all have the same deities that take on these different forms. So there's kind of a an underlying story that I think I can confidently tell no matter what medium I'm using. Yeah. Oh, that's clever. I like that. It's just kind of a, a way to tie everything together so that if you do have mega fans mm -hmm. that, that of, of a particular thing, yeah. they're going to have to do everything, right? Or they'll, they'll find things that are kind of tailored to them um, in pieces that they normally wouldn't be interested in. They're like, oh, that's a reference to that. Wow. Okay. I know that thing. And then yeah. I guess building nostalgia kind of will fall into place. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so is... Is Ghostfire Gaming, is uh, is that all, is that your company? No. Um, I have a couple of friends in Australia that have, uh, they started with Grim Hollow, the, the setting, mm -hmm. and I did a sponsorship for that. And then I told them, hey, I want to make a bestiary. Uh, how did you do this book? And they said, oh, we'll invest in that book and we'll help you with the Kickstarter. And if it does well, we'll keep building forward. So... Theirs was Ghostfire, and then uh, we temporarily made a business called Eldermancy that was owned by me and by Ghostfire, mm -hmm. and um, now that's just a working title. So uh, all my IP is currently my IP, but it is kind of under or at least in collaboration with what they're doing. They helped uh, Dungeon Dudes with Dungeons of Drakenheim, XP Level 3 with... Um, Questo Nomicon. So kind of following in the footsteps of Stibbles and the, the first kind of the forerunners of that. Oh, that, that's very cool. Do you think, do you find you enjoy that kind of, um, you know, we talked earlier about a little more collaboration and you liking to have people, other people shine. Yeah. Do you like, uh, do you like that collaboration behind the scenes as well? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I started when they were very small. It was a team of three of them. And now they have an office and a group of at least 12 people. And we're working with you know, collaborators overseas. So it got too, for me, it got too big too fast. And it's it's a very professional environment now as opposed to the smaller group. But obviously what their efforts, because they're so high profile, are a lot more lucrative. Mm -hmm. So um, I plan on running with them for a little while. You know, there's ups and downs to working with anyone. Oh, yeah. You know, when it comes from uh, employees or just regulations, there's issues and there's amazing parts of everything. So I'm, I'm happy with running with them for a while and getting a few more ideas out there published with them. Oh, that's very cool. It's it's fun because you... In the novel world, you don't really get a lot of opportunity for collaboration. Oh yeah, like you can write a book with somebody, but it's it's complicated, and and oftentimes that's how you destroy a good friendship. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you have very creative differences, and when you want to tell a story together, you're telling two different stories no matter what. Yeah, so I it's something that I'm that I'm often quite jealous of in terms of other creative fields 
is that there's a lot of opportunities uh, for YouTubers, uh, for you know, comedy writers, TV writers, people like that. They get to work with other creators all the time. Yeah. And, and I'm often kind of just sitting alone in my office. And in fact, th this podcast kind of came out of the, I kind of want to be able to talk to other creative people on a more regular basis because I'm alone so much. Then you know, we're honestly in the same boat. That's why I started doing Tall Tales, the uh, kind of improv quote unquote D&D &D, um, game that we do over on a second channel because uh, a lot of my collaborations are very temporary. They're very short. Mm -hmm. And otherwise it's just kind of me directing and doing, you know, the the math behind the scenes but it's a lot of fun to just kind of sit around and talk to other people like i'd like to start my own podcast um because this is a fun comfortable environment and we get to touch on a lot of really cool interesting topics so yeah yeah i, I find i i really enjoy it oh yeah it's fun D now did i see right that you wrote the song for the twisted taverns uh animation yes i did how was writing a f a song like that well you notice uh it doesn't quite have a chorus <laughs> um the composer just kind of added some i think just musical notes like oh um but as a kid i actually wrote a lot of poems and mm -hmm. that came very naturally to me the rhyming scheme was uh very fun to explore so trying to write a song it's just like oh let's just kind of do that and then hand it to a songwriter see how he likes it if he wants to change it and then hand it to the singer see how she likes it if she wants to change it and um we actually just because it was such a cool project we're doing a second one um not with the same same animation style because um that takes a lot longer and they're being very time crunchy now so yeah um but i put together some lyrics for the next one and it's more of kind of like an ominous sea shanty <laughs> so hopefully the the style shift will be really cool oh that's a lot of fun so you generally enjoy doing that then yeah i think so um i i don't know song structure very well and the melodies i didn't come up with like i could hum them in my head and then the composer comes up with a completely different melody so um but it is fun you know if if i learned a little bit more about it and if i had someone to work with to do more of that it would be fun yeah yeah and that's another point of kind of the collaboration and and being able to actually like see people in an office setting or a corporate setting where you're you're talking every day and bouncing ideas off of them. Those are advantages to that place with with uh, even little side little, projects. It's a lot less like uh, feeling like a husk in your own office, just kind of doing what you can today and then doing the same thing tomorrow. An office right. feels more alive. Right. Oh, definitely. I uh, man, I, I and I don't know if I I don't know. I, I've, I've wondered whether I could actually function in an environment like that. I remember right before I sold Powder Mage. I had there had been a, an opening at at some big gaming company for a, a creative writer, and I I, I had li literally written up a resume for it and not sent it. And I I often wonder if I had sent that, if I would have functioned, if I had gotten a job like that, yeah. if I would have functioned well at all in kind of that sort of environment. Um, because while it's lonely being alone in your office there's also a lot of control and you kind of, you get to choose your own schedule yeah. and you, there's so many things you can do. It's not, it, uh, that's the problem that I'm dealing with now. It's not that you can, it's that you have to, you have to do everything. So control very quickly becomes overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, suddenly my environment is entirely me. I have to choose everything. And really like you can neglect something. So there's a balance that comes from that, but it's very difficult to find. And I still haven't yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, gosh, like, well, and, and you talk about neglecting some things, often the things you neglect are, are your personal life. You know, mm -hmm. like, gosh, since I became a professional author, I've gained 45 pounds. 
Yeah. Or like, uh, oh, I had a really cool hobby that I, I bought some stuff for and now it's sitting there for two years. Oops. Yeah. Yeah. It's a rough. It's rough. Right. It just kind of you you have to choose what you're going to to do and not to do. And and it can be and, and the responsibility of being the person who makes the company run. Yeah. It's um, there's a lot of upkeep because it's not just making these choices. It's being those choices. You're making the choice every moment of every day to do what you're doing. And that is really kind of that can get overwhelming for anybody. Yeah, uh, definitely. I um, I was watching your latest video, uh, I think the one that came out three weeks ago. And uh, and the one of the things you said at the very beginning uh, actually made me spit my drink out, um, which was running out of ideas doesn't stop some people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was genuinely funny to me as a. fellow creator uh because it's so true yes and sometimes it's not really voluntary a huge problem is not that you're running out of ideas but that you can't make the decision to stop when you have Mm -hmm. it's like oh i don't have any ideas i'm still gonna make it because what else what other choice do i have it's not being aware that you can just slow down yeah well and it's it's a tough kind of aspect to uh, again to owning your own business to being a creative professional is is kind of balancing all that stuff, balancing, okay, how do I keep an audience engaged? Yeah. You know, like, as it's for me, it's been, mm. it will have been, I think, a full two and a half years between my books when my next book comes out. Oh. Um, and that stresses the crap out of me uh, because. Oh, the length of time and the retention. Exactly. Yeah. Like, do people care anymore that I'm an author? You know, like that kind of thing. Uh, and I, and I got to imagine that you guys who do this kind of the, like the YouTube stuff, like that is magnified by a hundredfold because, Oh, absolutely. Uh, because and of how often it's expected. Yeah. Uh, especially with these past, like, um, actually before I made the last few videos, I tried doing something new. It was obviously not, not blatantly ripped off of, but heavily inspired by, uh, internet historian and kind of his style of videos um, is just a couple people get into a call and they think about a topic and then they role play through, you know, like a, a story. So I, I tried a different type of story and nobody really cared at all. Mm-hmm. And I thought they were really funny. I showed them to my friends and they really liked them. So it really is just if it's different, it's bad. And if you wait too long to go back to what isn't different, then you're going to suffer. Yeah. So it's, it, yeah, you're right in saying that it's magnified because it's not just if I make something down the line, it's if I make something new. Yeah. So you said that before, but yeah, both of them are magnified and just they pile on top of each other. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, uh, I, I kind of, from, from kind of the business aspect though, you've got a, something that uh, another thing I feel like kind of our, our, our school systems don't do great on is is this idea of you know budgeting of trying to becoming you know owning a business and then knowing knowing when you're a la- when you can slow down because you know business is good and you've done mm-hmm. you've made a good amount of money maybe you've invested a little bit of it there's lots of things that you can do on a good year that nobody knows to do on a good year and so what everyone does, and like I said, what my company's doing, what a lot of people I'm familiar with are doing is, oh, let's invest in getting bigger and getting more busy and getting more exhausted. And that's just kind of the the American dream is just burning yourself out like a candle. Um, and and that is that is yeah. rough. And it, yeah. and it is it is the cost of the American dream, I think, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, like they, they don't ever they tell us that that's what we're supposed to do, but then they don't tell us 
how to delegate and how to, you know, form a business with more than one person. Uh, you know, like it took me, it took me years before I finally got even just a virtual assistant. And, and now, you know, she does 20 hours, 30 hours a month for me on kind of basic random stuff. That's good. And it takes so much stress off of me. Mm -hmm. Just even corresponding because there's such a burden in different people that like have different like gravity over your life or people that you care about. And then they're flooded under these people that are offering nothing. And it's like, uh, I don't want to do any of that. (laughs) Yeah. It gets overwhelming. Yeah. That would be such a massive relief because security has always been a big thing for me. Like I said, over the span of four or five years, I had 20 plus different jobs, different job titles. So financial security is not something that I am comfortable with, even though I kind of have now. It's, it doesn't feel familiar. It feels false. I feel like all of it's going to vanish next year when I when tax season comes around and something mm-hmm. will be in the hole. But yeah, it's rough. Yeah. And it's a very, it's, it's weird to explain to your friends mm. that you can make a huge amount of money one year and the next year make half as much. Yeah. Um, and it's, or just a fraction. Yeah. Or, or, or a 10th as much. It's, Oh yeah, absolutely. It's such a strange, it's an up and down thing. And, mm. and most people kind of live in that world of, ah, well, I, if I have a job, well, hopefully I have a good job, but if I have a job, I'm getting a paycheck every two weeks and I don't have to yeah. worry about it. And that's why I think people call it a fake job is because it's not quote unquote reliable. Because it relies on you, and no one is really confident in, in that. That's rough. Yeah, and I and I do have that kind of uh, existential dread of like, okay, you know, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, what would happen to my intellectual property? What what would happen? Like, would it just? I, I mean, I guess it would probably make a little money over the course of the next five years, and then just every it would disappear and be gone forever. I mean, ask the ten thousand people we've never heard of, and then ask Walt Disney. Neither of them seem to care anymore. <laughs> Yeah. So it's not so much of a burden. <laughs> right. I mean, if I'm dead, I'm not going to care terribly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, I <laughs> but, feel like those are worries that should should be a lot easier to put away. It's just like if I won't have the capacity to worry about that if I'm gone. So why do it now? Yeah. When when you had kind of these uh, when you were involved in these like massively 
popular, massively successful Kickstarters. Was there ever moments when you saw the numbers climbing and you just went, oh my God, this responsibility is going to crush me? Yeah, definitely with Seekers, that is the majority of what I felt. And then just the complexity of the project, just how many different facets the the concept and then the layers behind the concept were, were so massive and the response being as positive as it was immediately felt kind of like an obligation. It's like, oh, this big number is looming over me and that number determines the quality of what I have to make. Yeah. I I had a I had a panic attack after mm. uh after selling my books and finishing the first draft the final draft of the first book and knowing I had to start book 2, but suddenly like the difference was between um, book one, I made in a vacuum, just by myself in a little 500 square foot apartment that my wife and I had that I assume for however long you needed to make it. Yeah. Yeah. For how, for however long. And I just kind of, I did it and I developed it over years and, and that first book, you know, I could take my time. And then suddenly book two was looming over my head with a contract and a due date and Mm -hmm. it it changes everything. I mean, that was a huge problem in kind of the workflow that's being shifted right now in uh, the Ghostfire environment is the first one, uh, Stibbles, I was able to write it after we hit the stretch goal number. Mm -hmm. And then with, um, well, actually with the Seekers, it was the same. And then with this one, I had to finish it before, like the manuscript is done. Like I said, I finished it in two or three months. And now that it's done, um, we're going on to Kickstarter. So there are these stretch goals that I have to deal with. But it feels really weird to have a, a deadline for something that you don't even know is going to like you don't know how important it's about to be. It's just completely in the dark and a very short time period, obviously. Yeah, that I mean, gosh, that's got to be stressful of, of knowing that you may have to put forward for the X amount of work, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how successful things could be. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's one minor it's a concern of mine, but we've we've gone with consultants and everything. So hopefully the project will be fine, won't get a lot of backlash. But we, we didn't want to directly represent, but we wanted to be uh, heavily inspired and show themes similar to Polynesian and Norse cultures like Hawaii and just the history that um, the culture that I've been raised in has with Hawaiian culture is monstrous. Mm-hmm. It's horrendous. So to even slightly misrepresent that even though that's not what we're trying to do uh, to have people look at it and see it as an attack or as offensive is obviously it's a rational fear these days and it's something i don't want to face right so that's probably one of my major concerns well and that's a big thing uh that's a big thing in and i think across writing writing fantasy and science fiction in general uh is this idea of okay where does a respectful inspiration meet cultural appropriation yeah uh like where where do those run into each other and Mm -hmm. and how can i kind of navigate that as an author because we don't any none of us uh, create anything in a inspirational vacuum we're all taking little snippets from what we see in the world or or you know even a cool piece of architecture we saw a picture of you know there's so much that we're pulling in from there is nothing new under the sun it's really difficult to know yeah, it's been said in ancient times, and I think it's still it rings true all the time because it's always been true. Like even um, I think in in Christian mythology, they say that Adam and Eve saw a duck 
and then made the first canoe. So <laughs> like going back, it, it all comes from just what you see around you. The environment, like the zeitgeist that you have determines really who you are and what you're inspired to make. So it, it's difficult to try and represent those ideas and the way that you interpret them properly. It goes all the way back to what you were saying with people who want to speak to other people, but don't know how. Yeah. It's the same thing with representing something that isn't entirely that you don't have years and years of experience being. Yeah. Well, and it's very, it's, it, it's rarely malicious. I, I oh, it's, yeah. it's almost all always going to be an earnest sort of, I think this thing is cool. Yeah. This, this bit of inspiration, this bit of world history. Mm -hmm. I think it's very cool. I would like to use it in some way for this world that I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and, and not everyone feels that way. So when yeah. people are receiving these works, they can't tell if we're intending to be malicious or not. And that's where that whole fight or flight comes from. And that's, that's where the stress comes from this war that doesn't need to be waged, but people are waging it. Right. And it's nonetheless, it's, it's that thing of, um, it's that kind of feedback you can get of, of one person might tell you, uh, you have deeply offended me for grabbing something from my own cultural history. Mm -hmm. And another person in the, yeah. like the same line, the same Thank signature you. line yeah. at a, convention will mm. tell you thank you for using things from my history and and it's so hard to know i think i'm, I'm learning that every action has the uh proportionate positive and negative reaction there's a whole yin and yang to everything so the response shouldn't as matter it shouldn't matter as much as it definitely does online today and to a degree how much how much power we give it mm -hmm. you know there's there is still positivity out there if that is your intention if you're trying to spread you know just enjoyment of other cultures then it, that's it's it's a weird battle i don't really know i don't have a conclusion to it <laughs> no it really is and i think it's something that every creator is kind of struggling with a little bit uh especially creators that are very uh knowledgeable and engaged with online communities yeah just kind of 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 knowing how to walk that tightrope is very difficult and you're you're gonna make missteps naturally like no one has ever become a tightrope walker in a day. You're, you're going to start falling into these things and how much you let it get to you is, or how much I let it get to myself is uh, something I'd like to work on this year. Oh, oh yeah, for sure. It's, I, I think that's important. Like mental health is, is something that, that comes up a lot uh, when I'm talking to, to fellow creators uh, because like we said, so many of us are kind of creating just at home alone in a vacuum, in a vacuum. And, and the the even if we get amazingly good feedback all the time online in a comment section or on Twitter or whatever, like that's still just kind of things flashing on your computer screen. It's just noise because it's not people that, you know, and people whose opinions you value reviewing the stuff that you make. And that's that's really important. But to find those people is just as hard as making content itself. Do you do a lot of conventions uh, when when COVID isn't going on? Um, well, because I was just in the past uh, three years I started. The first one I did was PAX Unplugged in 2019. Yeah. And then uh, this last year we uh, we went to, I went to Gen Con with a bunch of other creators. It was like a silly frat house full of 20 of us. We had a great time. Yeah. And then uh, I went to PAX Unplugged again this year. It was very fun. So conventions are nice. I haven't done any sightings or any um, like panels or anything, but it's really funny to sit in the audience and see my friends do them and then go up and ask them some silly questions. I'd like to do it more. Well, and I, I imagine that when, when things are opening up, you'll probably start getting more invites to that kind of thing. I'm hoping so. But because but I, for me, that was one of the big kind of blows of COVID 
was going from, you know, six to eight conventions a year and hoping to ramp it up. That's a lot. To s- suddenly not going to any of them at all. Because that is kind of my like, like, oh, I get to go and sign books for people and I get to realize that there's other human beings that actually consume what I make. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have a friend, uh, I think online he goes by HTTP Paladin or HTT Paladin. Um, and he was supposed to do a book signing, but his books were shipped in the same package with a bunch of plushies and they had to check them for drugs. So his books got delayed to the day after the entire convention. Oh, no. Just ruined his whole his whole first day for sure. That's just rough. I, 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 went, I got invited to a convention once. And, uh, and I showed up and they had just basically given me the very standard inv- invitation of, hey, uh, we'll put you on some panels. We'll pay for your uh, flight and hotel. Please come out to our convention. And so I showed up only to have them tell me after I arrived that they had had an entire table for me oh. that they didn't tell me about. Like on the, not just like a signing table, but on the dealer's floor. And like, so there's this empty table with my name on it. Uh, right next to that you didn't bring supplies for I didn't bring any merchandise. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't bring books. I didn't have anything. Why would they do that? That's ridiculous. It, it genuinely it threw me off for the entire convention. I felt so weird yeah. about being there now because you have a burden thrust on you that day. Yeah, that you just you can't meet. That's ridiculous. Yeah, because like there's two different ways that you when you're an author, you kind of you can go to a convention kind of in seller mode where you bring a bunch of of like a pallet full of books and you sign all day and you are pitching to people in the, in the rows, or you can go just as kind of, you know, minor celebrity mode where you just Mm -hmm. have like a few hours, you sit at a booth and you sign books and you're done. You mingle, you network. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you think you're going in one mode, but you're expected to do the other mode, it's, it's a little messed up. Yeah. That's, that you really got raked over the coals there. <laughs> but oh that that's the fun stuff you can look forward to if you're if you start hitting the convention circuit hard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um so I uh I like to kind of wrap up these conversations by asking every guest, what's the last thing you ate that blew your mind? Shoot. Oh, um I actually have an answer for that. I went back to Central California. And there is a place in my hometown called Sequoia Brewing Company. And um, they always have really good food. Like they used to have a blue cheeseburger that blew my mind previously. Uh-huh. Um, and then they took it off the menu because the chefs were sick of making it or something. I don't know the story. But um, so I went there with a friend and I was like, let's splurge a little bit. You get the ribs. I'll get like a pulled pork sandwich and then we'll share. And those ribs were the best thing I had probably ever had. Oh. And I'm really upset that now that I'm up in Washington, there's nothing like it here. <laughs> It's just a, a little grill that pumps oil into everything they make. Oh man, <laughs> I I love I love good ribs. I love good barbecue. I got into re- I really got into smoking meats uh, a few years back. I used to work at Dickies. Um, oh yeah, the barbecue pit. Yeah, and they do smoke meats. Ah, so much better. I I got myself one of those kind of uh, like a five hundred dollars uh, kind of pellet smoker, hmm. and honestly, it's amazing. It like changes my whole kitchen experience. Oh yeah. I bet. Um, so I, I, if you have a deck, I highly recommend getting yourself a smoker. If you're big into like that kind of stuff. I can't make that promise because I've got other hobbies I haven't gotten into yet. Like I said. <laughs> that was YouTuber Logan Reese. Thanks again to Logan for taking the time to chat. You can find links to his YouTube and his website down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. 
Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, Glenn with an extra N, and Jennifer and Angela Johnson for their backing on Patreon. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.